So young adults and kids, how has how's it being back in school? Or virtually? <laughs> my my voice is hoarse because I'm speaking to a microphone for the last week, so I just I've been speaking extra loud so the, so the video camera would pick it up. So I'm like, so my throat's a little hoarse, so so you know what's going on. Yeah, why don't we open up to first uh, John chapter five, if you got your word with you. And uh, for, for those couple guests that are here today, what we have been doing as a church family uh, is teaching on what I've been calling heirloom seeds. Okay, So what we have here is, um, in the past, there have been good moves of God, good teachings that have come out. Uh, and we have a tendency in uh, Christianity to kind of have a form of spiritual ADD where we kind of just jump to the new trend and the new thing. And that's not necessarily bad if those things are in sound doctrine. Uh, but it is bad if you forget about the, the, the golden nuggets, the good things that previous generations have taught us. Right? So that's the whole concept. So we've been talking about like on unity. We've been talking about priesthood. Uh, we have been talking about the notion of stewarding your garden. There's a lot of kind of interesting different ways we've been looking at it. And this one is going to be the sensitive one. I'm throwing out there right now. The sensitive one is a message that is really coming from the Jesus movement of the late 60s and 70s. Okay? We'll talk about that a little bit. And their message, I feel, is a good reminder of a warning, a warning to suburban Christianity. Okay. So strap in a little bit, all right? All right, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Lord, we just come before you and I just ask, as always, that your Holy Spirit governs today, governs the message, but Lord, really governs our heart, that we, we do not walk away and feel that we've been condemned, Lord, that there be a conviction in our spirit to live a life that is in accordance to your word and what you've called us to be and do on planet Earth, amen? Amen. So what we have here, who has overcome the world? Jesus has overcome the world through victory. And by our faith, when we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, we believe that He is the Son of God, we ourselves overcome the world. Alright, we really gotta get that, right? We are supposed to overcome the world, not allow the world to overcome us or overwhelm us. Right? So, uh, we'll take a little look here. Some of you uh, may know a little bit about the Jesus movement or the Jesus revolution of the 70s. Several of you are probably byproducts of that movement. And essentially this, when we get into a little bit of history today, when we get into a little sociology uh, to give you an understanding of what is really happening in the 21st century. Okay? So this is what's going on. In the 1960s, there is a countercultural movement, right? The hippies. In 1967, they have this crazy, ridiculous, absurd, disgusting festival out in San Francisco in 1967 called the Summer of Love. About 100,000 people go out there. It is Summer of Love. We're talking drugs, LSD, not just pop, we're talking LSD, we're talking hard stuff. We're talking about people are there all summer and there's free music, there's free food, and there is free sexual encounters. Okay? Known as the Summer of Love. Alright? Now, out of that, historians are saying that actually out of this experience and out of the hippie movement experience, something unbelievable, and I, in my opinion, something unbelievable happened. Uh, by the 1970s, these kids who were so, in, so disenfranchised by their childhood, so, so done with the typical American life, that they began to seek out like new age things, right? Buddhism and all this kind of stuff. And some of them, when they were seeking this stuff out, they're like, oh, this new age stuff, this Buddhist stuff, is leaving me empty. It's actually leaving me empty. At the same time, 
Um, they're looking at their lives and their nice cookie cutter suburban homes and their nice cookie cutter suburban experiences. Are, this also feels a little empty, right? Like the purpose of life is to work, to buy things. It's leaving my soul empty. And so what happens here is, is actually quite phenomenal. <laughs> Through their pursuit, they're going to change from viewing Buddha as the way, and several of them, a lot of them in a generation, start to seek Jesus. And there is this unbelievable revolution that takes place, that actually by the year 1971, this movement, this organic movement of young people living out a life for the gospel makes it on Time Magazine. It's that powerful of an expression. And so, what's, uh, what's going on here? In the 1950s, this is like my history teacher coming out, what these kids are growing up in, there's a lot of good things that are happening in the 1950s. Best, well, second best type of music, rock and roll is happening, right? Um, there's, there's just a lot of good things that are happening in the neighborhoods, you know? Um, but there's also some not great things that are happening. And one of the not great things that are happening in the 1950s in the suburban environment is going to be a sense of what we call in social studies and history, hyperconformity. Meaning, everyone has to essentially act and be the same, right? All the houses look the same, everyone has to dress the same, everyone has to like the same things. 60% uh, of females are gonna be dyeing their hair blonde, uh, I think it's 35% of females are taking a diuretic so they can be a certain size and other thing. Uh, all men are going to be going into business and wearing the, the gray flannel suit and doing their thing. Uh, you have to, in the business world, you have to drink two martinis at lunch. Um, you have to go play golf. Women, you have to stay at home, right? You're not at work, you stay at home and make cookies, right? It's, uh, you know, leave it to be. There's a sense of hyperconformity, and, and with that conformity, is also going to come uh, hyper-consumerism. Uh, these are things like uh, just keeping up with the Joneses, right? We need to buy things that our neighbors have. Essentially, we have the birth of the American dream, but not just the birth of the American dream, but the birth of outdoing others, right? The neighbors got the new car, I didn't get the new car, right? The neighbors uh, sealed the driveway, I need to seal the driveway, right? Uh, our neighbors moved into this nice nice new neighborhood. We need to move into this nice new neighborhood. As kids, you feel completely compelled to enter into what we call the career cycle, which is, you know, you grow up in suburbia, and the ideal is for you to go to a college. You go to a college to get a good career so that you move back into the same neighborhood your parents did. It's actually quite unbelievable. 90% uh, uh, of females that go to college their freshman year, 90% of females that go to college their freshman year will drop out. The reason why they drop out is because they're not getting a BS degree, a Bachelor's of Science, they're getting an MRS degree, a Mrs. degree. The whole purpose to go to college is to snag a man. So you really have to do well in high school so you can go to Harvard, because if you go to Harvard, you find an Ivy League guy, wow. right? That is the way that it works, okay? Now, this is the experience that these 1960s, 70s kids grew up in as a, as a kid. And like I said, there's a lot of good things that are happening during that time period. There's a lot of purity, there's almost a sense of uh, a naive kind of nature to things, but it, there's also not great things that are going on. So what happens here is this, this young group of people, these hippies, they're into a radical departure, right? First, they try out new age kind of stuff, and many of them stay there. But those that get saved, they're gonna take a look at suburban church structure, right? And they're gonna look at it, and they're gonna be like, it appears, it's not my words, it's their words, like Keith Green's words, it appears to be missing a depth of the gospel. And so, that's gonna raise a lot of questions. Because they just got saved out of a movement that's like, I don't care what I look like. I don't care if I have holes in my jeans. Like, I don't care about what people think about me. I'm, I'm not overly concerned about what I'm gonna do for a living. And now they go to their parents' church with beards, long hair, Birkenstocks, ripped jeans, and they don't know where they fit. 
Now I'm gonna give a little warning to this, and this is, this is really important for, especially if you're over 50. Because you're not gonna, you're not gonna necessarily completely like what I'm, what I'm teaching on. But. First warning, believe me, Pastor Dave is not having a midlife crisis. First thing you need to know, I, I'm not having a midlife crisis. I already had a quarter life crisis when I was like 23. If you knew me when I was 23, you'd be like, what the heck? I had my quarter life crisis back then. So there's no need to have a midlife crisis because I got it out of the way. Right? That's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing we need to understand is this. Suburbia and the American dream is not inherently bad. I want to say it's right off the bat so that you do not like email me or corner me after church at the cafe outside. Suburbia and the American dream is not inherently bad. It is just really hard living out the full gospel in a suburban lifestyle. Okay? It's really hard. It's really hard. If you really want to take what Jesus teaches, if you really want to take what he teaches, and you throw it into suburban life, and suburban Christianity, there are a lot of conflict. It is absolutely possible living in the American dream, living in suburbia, and still living on the full gospel. It's just harder than some other environments, I think. So I'm not preaching against the American dream, although it may sound like it. I'm not even preaching against suburbia. I live in suburbia. I teach in probably the most American dream district in the state of Pennsylvania. Okay? It's not bad. But you have to look at it and say, is it conflicting with the gospel? That's what you have to do. And we as largely suburban Christians, we need to evaluate that. Okay? And I think it's a warning that would come back from the 1970s. Amen? I hope we're all kind of on the same page. Yeah. Alright? Maybe not. Alright. What's going on here? Uh, during this Jesus movement, because there are these ex-hippies that really don't care. They don't care what mainstream society thinks about them. They don't care about what their parents' church thinks about them. They're like, I'm going to live for Jesus and no strings attached. I don't have to fit into a certain mold. And they're doing that because they cut their teeth on being hippies. Which everyone hated. I don't know we're like, oh, hippies, weren't they like cool and stuff? No. The hippies were like, you were a freak in the family if you're a hippie back then. You're strange. You're weird. Right? Hippies need not apply. You should be on the signs outside of the stores. And I don't want to glorify, you know, the counterculture of hippie time period. They did a lot of bad stuff. But those that were delivered from that bad stuff took something and brought it to a Christian faith that says, I don't care what mainstream culture says about me and my faith. Amen. I'm living for Jesus. Amen. And so there's a radical devotion to the gospel, a radical devotion to Jesus, and it conflicted with many of the things of middle-class Christianity. It was anti-consumerism. I don't have to keep buying things. I don't have to keep enlarging my own kingdom and I'm sure that I'm not going to conform to what the Christian church says I'm supposed to be like so essentially what's going on here historically speaking the hippies the non-Jesus movement hippies were seeking a sense of individuality non-conformity and non-consumerism consumerism buying things to show that you are successful to feel good about yourself I get a bigger house, I feel good about myself. Look what I was able to do, right? That's consumerism. Now, what happens here is when these hippies, when some of them meet Jesus, they finally become a true individual before the maker of heaven and earth. Because they're not so entrapped by all the other stuff. Because they just came and were delivered out of such a radical experience. It's like today, people getting saved in jail. They get saved in jail, they come out and they're like, fired up! So they've just been in jail, where right? like all of the, everything is stripped away from it. Wow. Right? And so there's a big question that I think we need to ask, and I'm not sure if we can answer it yet, but I think we need to ask it as a church. 
big questions. Will and can there be a radical counterculture movement in the United States again? And more importantly, in the church again. I mean, my counterculture is like, I don't care what the mainstream culture says about me because I have been saved and delivered by Jesus and my life is not my own and I pick up my cross daily and I'm going to look like a freak for Jesus and I simply don't care about what my neighbors think about me. We need that in the church. Amen. We haven't had it since the 70s, Amen. in my opinion. But if we have, it's been a very small amount. We're talking about a generational movement. We're talking Keith Green, who stands up in front of the Christian Music Awards and rebukes Christianity for selling their albums. I'm talking about Keith Green who's like, I'll sell albums so I can get money to buy a plot of land so I can have a compound where I can invite ex-prostitutes and druggies to there when they get saved. I'm talking that level of countercultural production. Can you imagine a Christian artist saying that today? At the Christian Music Awards? Repent. They read him off. He's too radical. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Jesus was radical in his day. I know, but we don't serve Jesus. We serve middle class Jesus. That's the point. All right. All right. Let's take a look. I told you I'm going to rustle some feathers. No, it's good. Keep it going. I got one person I think was alive for that time period that was support, support. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Like I said, American Dream is not bad. It's just, it's, we have to look at it. It's all right. Does it conflict with gospel? Any question? All right. So, look, well, can it happen? I would say it's not going to happen. It can't happen without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to have to do it. And it's not just like the pad and answer. The Holy Spirit has to do it. Um, it's that, uh, that um, society has changed so much, people. Society has changed so much that it only can take the Holy Spirit in the church and outside the church. Yeah. This is what I'm getting at. Today, anti-conformity has been commercialized. Christianity has been commercialized. So, anti-conformity, it's like, look, if you want to not be a conformist, I have something to sell you. A, a book, type of clothing, a website, you know. Hippies didn't wear uh, more jeans with holes in them because they're like, I'm not going to buy a new pair of jeans. Today, you go to, you know, you go to African Fitch and buy a pair of jeans for 100 bucks that have holes in them. That's what I'm talking about is that the anti-conformity has been commercialized. And what's really sad is that Christianity largely has been commercialized as well, right? Buying and, and what have you, right? Now, that's one thing, but the, the real problem with all this, whether it's in the world or in the church, is this. Commercialization produces conformity, and conformity produces commercialization. If you feel that when you walk into a church, you need to look a certain way, be a certain way, listen to certain music, have a certain Bible, have a certain version of the Bible, you're going to buy, you're going to buy that stuff, right? Like when you walk into a church in your environment, they all look a certain way and act a certain way, you might feel compelled to go out and get that stuff. And so what happens here is in the need and the feeling to conform to a certain image produces in American society a feeling and a need to now buy things to fit into that image. That could be a conference, that could be a book, that could be the way that you dress, the way that you act, or where you live. Right? Now, this is, this, the reason why I think it's so hard to have a true major countercultural movement in, in society and in the church it's because of this. There's a temptation. The temptation is for one to have an outward appearance of nonconformity, you know, dressing a certain way, being a certain way, while still maintaining an inner surrender to the conformity of the world. Now, I say this to my, my teenagers all the time that I teach. Like, modern society has just sold you a bill 
You know, be a thug, be a punk person, be a, uh, a hipster, you know, be whatever kind of genre you want to be. But to be that, you need to buy things. And, you know, dye your hair purple, I don't care. I mean, cut it all off. There's all these outward signs of, look at me, I'm different. And it's largely a screening because inside you actually have surrendered spiritually. And surrender not to a good thing. Here it is. In our pursuit of the American dream and our acquiescence to it, there is a clear and present threat. The threat is that of an inner surrender. What are you surrendering to? Okay? Any questions? A little different today. Yeah. I didn't have one ready. It's all right. I'd rather have the questions now than tomorrow morning when I have to do my email. Look, I guess I'm going to tell you guys, American Dream's not bad. I kind of have the American Dream. I, I like it. It's cool. Um, but you need to be aware that it has a pull. Yeah. It has a pull of maintenance. It has a pull of, of keeping it up. That's right. right. It has a pull of, you know, you, you need to look like the neighbor. It has a pull of, don't rock the boat. It has a pull of, what are your neighbors going to think when you knock on your door? It's going to have a pull on when you, when, when you stand in righteousness. And it's going to have a pull when someone knocks on your door for Halloween and you tell them the gospel. Amen. It's very easy to surrender. Um, and it's really happened the first time in, the, in history in America in the 1950s. All right, two little history lessons on suburbia. All right, the first, the first suburbia experience. And I'm doing this in like a sociological way because I need, I, I think for. In order for us to be able to determine how we interact with suburban Christianity and how we interact with the American dream, the first thing you need to do is you need to be able to see it. You need to see how it's been able to be formed. Now, I can't preach into a spirituality to it until you really see the form of it, okay? Once again, David is saying, I'm not having a midlife crisis. And two, American dream is not inherently bad. It's a good thing, but it needs to be surrendered to Jesus. Amen. Okay? All right, here we go. All right, so the first uh, sub suburb is going to be Levittown, New York, 1946. Okay? It was so successful uh, that they replicated it in, uh, outside of Philadelphia and also, I believe, in Ohio. But if you go to Levittown, New York, and you go to 32 uh, you know, Rosewood Drive, uh, and I blindfolded you, put you in a car, and drove you to uh, Pennsylvania, and took you to 52 Rosewood Drive, now in Levittown, Pennsylvania, guess what? You're looking at your house. Same format, same model. Now, there's a lot of, lot of beautiful things that happened in Levittown back then. A lot of family, a lot of neighborhoods, a lot of caring, a lot of outside play. Good stuff was happening there, and it's still happening in suburbia. But there's been some weird things that have happened. In the 1950s, the American Dream House, the ideal was 1,000 square feet. That's what they sold it as. That's the American Dream. 1,000 square feet. I, I, you're in an apartment now with 1,000 square feet, and you're like, oh, this is tight. Now, what's really interesting here is those, those, those homes had like two parents, four kids. Two parents, four kids, a thousand square feet. Now, a lot of the Levittown homes today, there's been additions, they've blown out walls, they've made it bigger, all that stuff. But what we have here is today, the American dream house is 2,000 square feet. 2,000 plus is the average. So we've doubled the size of the American dream. But what's very interesting here, in the 2,000 square feet, there's less kids. Twice the size home, but less kids in the family. Wow. Right? It's like, can you imagine that now? Six people living a thousand square feet. <laughs> we'll get the, there you go. Uh, <laughs> we um we take a look, right? So it's, it's jumped to uh, the two thousand, right? So what happens here is this: the, the, the House of America Dream has doubled what the American family has grown smaller. So we want to take a look at a little bit of the history here, right? We got this, right? Here's a, here's a grid, uh, a grid of like city life. Okay, so this is like pre-suburb. Sorry to bore you, hopefully some of you find this somewhat interesting. <laughs> uh, I usually don't get this on Sunday morning. 
Alright. Ah, oh, thanks, I did. Appreciate it. The enemy is speaking to me right now. Get out of here, devil. Alright, so here's like a grid that came on. This is a little grid of how Philadelphia used to be, right? Uh, in center of uh, city, Philadelphia, you'd have, you'd have wasps, okay? This is like pre-1950s. What are wasps? White Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? Okay? White, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants would be hanging out in, like, you know, center city, right? Why? Because they've been here since, you know, 1640 or whatever it was, right? And what happens here is new immigrant populations come to Philadelphia and they set up their communities, right? Right? Italy, Italians, South Philadelphia, duh, you all know that, right? South Philly is Italian, right? So the Italians come and move to South Philly, right? When the Irish come, they move up to Northeast Philly. Almost like any Irish person that lives in the suburbs is like, can you grow up in Northeast Philly? You're like, right, yeah. If not, you live your grandparents, right? That was the place, right? Okay, some other places. Uh, North Philadelphia uh, was the place for Jewish Americans largely. Uh, even today, there's a, a university, or rather a college called Gratz College, right? So North Philadelphia was like the Jewish enclave. Uh, and then Northwest and Western Philadelphia was the section for African Americans. And then, of course, we have right east and southeast would be the Delaware River, nowhere else to go. And so the city was kind of formatted this way. But what happens here is you have these enclaves of, uh, of ethnicities that are living in these neighborhoods. But there's something very profound that would happen in, we're, we're going back like 100 years here, okay? It's not necessarily how it is now, right? You have these enclaves, but what's going to happen here is that these communities actually cross-pollinated. Because it's the city, right? You, you live in the Italian neighborhood, I don't know, maybe you're going to go to the store that just so happens to be in the Wasp neighborhood. Or maybe you're like on the subway and you're interacting with people that are different than you. Or you go to the schools. Philadelphia School District, all taxpayer money is put into the same pot. So every single kid, whether black, white, Jewish, Irish, wasp, Italian, or whatever, in Philadelphia, they're all getting the same amount of money for their education. So there's an equity that's there in some regards. Alright? Now, that's what's happening with people when you're living in the city, you actually cross encounter people. Alright? Now, what's gonna happen here, and this is this is the sociology bit, is when the suburbs are created, something happens. It's known as suburban sprawl. We used to call it great white flight, but they don't want to call it that anymore because obviously the sensitivity is being real with you. So they call it suburban sprawl. What happens here is this. With the birth of suburbs, people that want to leave the city and can leave the city, leave the city. So boom, right? They start leaving. And so 1950s and the 60s, they're moving to Northeast Philly, Right? They're moving to Bristol, they're moving to these places, okay? Now what happens here is every decade, uh, what happens here is some of the people that no longer like their community, right? They don't really like Northeast Philadelphia because it's changing, or it's this, or it's that, or there's too many people and too much traffic and all that. What they do is they move out. Now they move out and boom, so now they go further out in the birds. And then that gets a little congested, and then boom, they move further out, and boom, they move continually further and further and further out. Now, what happens here is something very unique and something that is, is very important for you to understand suburban Christianity. It's this. While this happens, each layer that happens, the conformity gets stronger. Why do I say this? Now, Bristol's different. That's why I love Bristol so much. It's closer to the city. There's a good mix of people, but it's not like where I grew up. Where I grew up, 98% are white, and you're either Jewish or Catholic. Right? So what happens here is each layer, there's a funneling in of people, and the people become more and more the same. They do. I'm not a history teacher. I'm teach this. It's like a question of a final exam. Yeah. Right? The closer you get to the city, the bigger the, the mix of people. The further away you get from the city, the less the mix. Now it's happened. Now when it happens, it's not that it's wrong. But when it happens, this is the issue of suburban Christianity. Is that when it happens, the people that you live around are more like you. 
It's known as de facto segregation. It's segregation by circumstance, not segregation by law. Segregation by law was outlawed in 1968. If you're black, or you're Hispanic, if you're Italian, if you're Irish, if you're Jewish, you can go anywhere you want in accordance with the law. But what we have here is we've set up neighborhoods today that's not based on skin tone, but based on money. Yeah. Right? Yep. Now, just being honest with you, that, any segregation like that, has a potential problem to the Christian walk. And that's what I want to get to. Uh, here's a brilliant book that was written in the 1950s by a Jewish Christian guy, a Jewish believer. Uh, the Christian Future or the Modern Mind Outrun. And what he's talking about here is, look, we either have a Christian future in this nation, or we have a future where modern mind is going to rule all things. And his concern here is that the modern mind is infiltrating the Christian mind in suburbia. And he gives a warning. So let's take a look at some of these potential things. All right. First potential thing uh, of these segregated communities is a concern for the ur urban church. The urban church in America is up against the ropes, if not knocked out. I've talked to pastors in urban settings, and they're like, we have to close the doors. And why do you have to close the doors, man? We, all, we don't have enough people coming, or we do have enough people coming, but they don't have enough money. And so we don't have enough money to keep the doors open. And they're closing, man. You go down to West Philadelphia, North Philadelphia. There's like a church in every other corner. And they're closed. Right? The money's not there to support what's happening. Okay? Uh, there's not enough money to pay staff. There's not enough money to do the upkeep of the building because there's a lot of poverty there. Uh, and here's the thing. Speaking of the suburban conformity, in order to be a pastor in the 21st century, you're expected to go to college, then seminary. College today is like 40 grand a year. That's $120,000 for four years. And then you go to seminary for another two years, you have a $200,000 bill, you have a mortgage. And now you're gonna go to a town like inner city Philadelphia and be like, can you pay me a salary that supports my student loan payment? You know what $200,000 Dollar student loan payment is for 30 years. Do you know how much that is a month? About 900 bucks. Nine hundred dollars. Like what young buck that wants to like? I want to change Philadelphia. Got a 900 dollar month student loan payment, right? But but that that's an extension of like a middle class perception. Well, a pastor should get a college degree. No, he or he or she does not. But that's the expectation in. Suburban, right? Yeah. No, I mean, nothing against us here, but Bristol is a, is, is a tough town. This church has not had a full-time pastor in three decades. Three decades. 30 years. And why is that? Because of some of these elements. To be honest, I commend many of you for driving in. From your neighborhoods and, and come in and come into fellowship here where we have a very good mix of people. Amen. Which is a picture of the kingdom of God. Amen. So the first problem that we can have here is this kind of the urban church is failing. Guys, like I don't know if I would know this kind of sensitive, but I don't know if we should be giving too much money to like third world missions when our own church is down the street and falling apart because there's no money. <laughs> it's like you know, I'm all for giving money to, to Africa and India. I mean, I do. And we as a church help out with missions in, in the Middle East and all that stuff. It's like, I remember having conversations with like mega church people. I'm like, we're a small church. We really could use your mission support. And it does not fall on good ears. Because they have to pay their stuff, right? That's just the reality. It's the reality of this suburban byproduct of Christianity. Just being real with you so you understand what's going on here. Second thing, this is what this guy, Rosenstock QC, the guy who wrote this book, says. He says, uh, in this kind of suburban Christian environment, because of the segregation of things, reality can become distorted. What I mean by this, reality can become distorted. If you're going to church with people that are all like yourself, 
you don't know what it's like to be someone else. That's right. This is this is uh, the middle class, working class looking down on the poor class, like how they should just work harder. Or the middle class looking up at the upper class and saying, oh, you guys are just greedy, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. This is the upper class looking down at the middle class while well, you would have just worked harder. I'm not saying people think like that, but let's be real. Some people think like that. We get lost in it all. We don't know what it's like to be like someone else. We don't know what it's like to be a, a single parent and having to work two jobs. Or you're, you're, you're a middle class or lower class and you look up the wealthy and you don't know what it's like to be wealthy. Oh, they have it so good, do they? You know the school that I, that I teach at for nine years in a row? Nine years in a row, there was a suicide. Guess what? Interesting kids don't commit suicide. Wealthy white kids do. So up in the, in the wealthy areas, it's not all peachy. There's just different problems. But you don't know what it's like. And people that are off top don't know what it's like. And we lose reality. Because you only live in a bubble that's yourself. And you can't disconnect to understand what other brothers and sisters are going through or what other communities are going through. And that is a major, major problem. Because Christ says, bear the burdens of one another and fulfill the laws of Christ. So, you're around people that are similar. Well, that's great. I, I don't know if that's great. If you're around people that are similar too much, it produces what we call tribalism. And tribalism creates a sense of having to fit in. It's a very deep sense of fitting in. And so if you live in a community where everyone is relatively like you, same amount of money, same things that you like to do, maybe same skin tone, maybe even same kind of religious affiliation, what happens here is there is a sense to fit into that mold. This is what the Jesus movement was concerned about. If you fit into that mold, you do anything that is too radical, you do anything that's too extreme, to lay down your life for the cause of the gospel too much, you are going to be what? Criticize, ostracize, abnormal, weird, whatever, what the heck's wrong with you? The next piece, which I think is probably the most important. And I'm, say, I'm not saying you have this. I'm not saying I have this. I'm saying it's a warning. Uh, Rosenthal, QC says something about the long, long lines of what's called the golden mediocrity. He says, when we segregate ourselves and we live in these kind of suburban enclaves where everything is relatively safe, nice, and put together, and we feel the need to conform and be like the ones. It can produce what he calls the golden mediocrity. What is it? Becoming more and more non-committal. Say that again. Becoming more and more non-committal to the gospel and more and more non-committal to faith. Because if you commit too much, there's a fear of going too far in one direction. So the argument here is suburban lifestyle can create a lifestyle that is very safe. Very safe. The schools are good, there's no crime, we have the money, we have the pension plan, the house is put together, and those are all good, wonderful things. It's good, it's actually biblical. But when you allow that external safety to cover up a safety from within, you, you can walk in a spirit of safety without taking risks of the gospel. Without sharing, without, without emptying out your piggy bank for, for a mission. Because you got to play it so safe, right? Because that's what responsible people do. Yeah, say that to Paul, who was flogged and beaten and beheaded. Sure, he had a 403B or 401K. Now, there's nothing wrong with pension plans. They're good things. They actually could be very well biblical things. But you cannot allow that to dictate your lifestyle. And so what he says here is that we create this golden mediocrity where we never act without side, glass, side glancing to others about what they think. And so what this can do is this can produce a malaise, an apathy, where we live a life that has no real feeling of excitement, live a life with no real devotion, no real fight, no real love. And he argues man is in the process of being secularized through our comforts and playing our lives safe. You guys have got to look internal. 
And you determine if you're playing life too safe. Playing life too safe. Yeah. Are you laying it down? Yeah. You think about all the things that we construct and make sure we have a nice, safe, comfortable, tribal, whatever community you're in. If you're if you're working class, then a working class life. Middle class, or middle class life. Upper middle class, the upper middle class life. Those things are not inherently bad. But if they're being produced to create safety and conformity and not being used for the power of the gospel, we got a problem. That's the warning. Uh, the next one, last one, uh, is to live to protect the present. So, warning to the suburban Christianity is living a life to protect the present. Think about how much we do is to protect the lifestyle we have. There's a lot of stuff that we do to protect the life that we have. Uh, William James, a great philosopher, said it this way, the most significant characteristic of modern civilization is the sacrifice of the future for the present. And all the power of science has been prostituted for this purpose. Oh, worship team going out there. What are we getting at here? It's, it's a notion of, man, how much, how much are we living for the present right now opposed to the age to come? Amen. And how much are we doing to protect the life that we have now opposed to the life that is coming before us? Amen. How much are we doing to, to keep our temporal world and our temporal life safe and comfortable opposed to risking it all as the Lord leads for the furtherance of the gospel? Hippies in the 1960s who could not give a rip about all of the trappings of life got that. But share the gospel and live a life that is radical. And so, what shall we have in this nation? A Christian future and surrender to the power of the cross. Or shall we have a modern mind that's completely outrun? And so, just closing up a little bit today, I just want to ask a couple questions to put a little bit more biblical flavor on this. Because I understand up until now, it's been largely like, okay, like we just looked at a map. So let's get into the word here. Get yourself set up in uh, Hebrews 12. I almost, but I didn't. I was so close. I was, I was going to wear a shirt tucked out with a baseball hat on. Maybe even shorts. Your pastor's going up here with a baseball hat. Like, yeah, this is just me. Or does middle class Jesus have to, middle class Jesus and middle class pastors have to dress a certain way? Hmm. I thought that was last minute. I, I, I know. I know, I'm sorry. Let's be honest. It's like, ah, It's like, I'm having a good ear today. It's got fresh cuts. Hey, you're ruining out the hat. You know what I'm saying? Alright, here we go. Speaking of that. How many of us, how many of us, going back to these warnings, how many of us are living a distorted reality? People are aching in this world for an answer. They're aching for it, man. Poor people have a pain of want, and wealthy people have a pain of having so much but yet yearning to feel something real. They're aching. They are aching for the truth. Poor people are looking for answers. Why am I not fulfilled? I can't even get the stuff that I need. And wealthy people are like, my gosh, my kids and I are depressed. I need to feel pain again. That's why the suburban white females have, have sometimes cut themselves. I mean, you know, students have had to deal with that. Why are they doing that? Because you're yearning to feel. I feel nothing because I have everything. I need to feel something. 
Holy cow, man. There are people that are aching. And if we're living in our little bubble, we think everyone is just like us. We're going to lose an opportunity to preach the gospel and win people to the cross. We've got to get out of our own selves. We've got to get out of our own protection. Hebrews 12.2 Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus decided to walk out and suffer shame. For the word of his Father, and we as ambassadors are to do the same, how many of us are living in a place of that golden mediocrity where we aren't willing to commit fully to the things of the Lord? The greatest enemy of great is good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm safe. I go to church. I'm tired. I pray. Are you wanting to get radical? Whoa, 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 whoa. Too radical what people think. I know, what people think. There are churches that are afraid to be too radical. How will people perceive it? I don't know if we read the same Bible or not. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have, have we not even done wonderful wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's not right about it all. Seeking the gift of healing, seeking the gift of prophecy. You can say, Lord, Lord, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven because you can lay your life down to the Lord. That's a warning that must go out to suburban Christianity. The time of being lukewarm was over 2,000 years ago. And in the 1970s, a bunch of radical kids. But your radical kids reminded you of that. The problem is we don't have that anymore because anti-conformity has been commercialized and Christianity has been commercialized. Yeah. We gotta get back in our bones. It's an heirloom of, of seed of faith. Too many people worrying about building up their name to sell an album and to sell something on iTunes. You have a preaching that goes out for people to see, so they give you money and your name will get recognized. Get away from me. I never knew you. If that doesn't keep you up, if that doesn't stir up your spirit, this is what I gotta do. It's okay, Jesus tells you. Lay your life down. Pick up the cross. Preach the gospel. Don't care about what your neighbors think about you. Don't care what people in church think about you. Me. It's like, what do we do 
John F. Kennedy said it this way, conformity is the jailer of freedom. Conformity is the jailer of freedom and the enemy of growth. Romans 12, 2 says it this way. Do not, do not, do not, do not conform to this world. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's not a comfortable life. A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, you see this warning, it's what it is. We need to have our minds renewed. We have conformed so much to what the middle class suburban experience expects of us that we've lost the power of the cross. Now we can have the things of suburban Christianity and still be holy and pure if you're still willing to lay everything down as a living sacrifice. That's the balance. Thought is not consecrated unless it resists the trends. You believe in Jesus, you believe in all these things, it means nothing until you resist the trend that's coming up against you. Then it has been consecrated. Amen. So the lesson from the Jesus movement is this. These radical kids were looking for new age and left them empty. Their society in the 50s and the 60s were a generation of people that were pursuing conformity, uh, pursuing comfort, pursuing consumerism. And they said, this leaves me empty. And they're, and they're, they're a fine Jesus. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't meet, I didn't meet the church when I got saved. I didn't meet a church that promised me comfort and promised me a good life. On the day of salvation, I met a man. And his name is Jesus. And he said unto me, your life may be difficult, but I will not give you anything that you can't bear. He says, if you, I promise if you lay down your life, I will raise it up again. They said, that's who I met, Mom. That's who I met, Dad. That's, that, that's who I met. So, go against the trends of culture, and even against the trends of cultural Christianity. Now, you may say, this radical stuff doesn't work. Come on, it's so irresponsible, it doesn't work. You can't tell me that. Because I and my family are living proof that it works. In the year 1974, my uncle is a police officer. He's driving on a highway, Sunbelt Parkway, Long Island, New York. He's driving, and there's a kid, a young guy, dressed in jeans with holes, long hair, a beard, with sandals on, putting his thumb out, hitchhiking, hitchhiking is illegal in New York. My uncle, who's a police officer, stops the car and says, yo, kid, where are you going? The kid looks at my uncle straight in the eye and says, where am I going? I know where I'm going. Where are you going? Do you know Jesus is Lord and Savior? My uncle brings him to the car, brings him to the car, drives him to his mother's house. At his mother's house, his two little sisters are there. And that day, right, picking up this radical believer, my grandmother, my uncle, my aunt, and my mom all get saved. And from that one God, that one God, who says, I don't care what a cop is going to say about me. I know where I'm going. He needs to know the gospel. From that one encounter, my uncle had five kids. My mom had three kids. I have three kids. My uncle's kids had kids. We're now four generations deep. I count up because of one man. Says I don't care about the suburban Christianity and bring them to a Lutheran church. I care about witnessing on the street because that one man. I counted today. There are thirty-two people in my family who love Jesus. There's a one man. Who 
attitude, someone witnessing to you with a shirt off? Doesn't speak real well, be a little rough around the edges. Maybe he still smells of the perfume of marijuana, but he's teaching you about Jesus. Can you imagine today? He looked different. This guy that I picked up, he looked different. He acted different. He didn't smell. He didn't smell like middle class Jesus. He smelled like the perfume of the Holy Ghost. And I and my girls have eternal life. You won't believe it. Michelle's dad got saved like 1978. That's how he got saved. Picked up a hitchhiker. Picked up a hitchhiker. And God saved. And he got married. And my mother-in-law got saved. And they had three girls. And they had three, four, five. We're on our six. She's on a sixth grade. All because of a radical devotion to the teachings of Jesus. So this is personal. I'm saved because of it. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God will plead through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf and reconcile us to God. What do we have? To be ambassadors. To be ambassadors. To be ambassadors. To be like Jesus. Is it possible to be born again, saved, and living a life devoted to the cross as you are in the American dream and you're living the suburban lifestyle? Yes. It's just you need to have a warning that you don't get lost in it. You need a warning that you're not getting lost in it. To the pure, all things are pure. Jesus was not a poor man. It's nothing against that lifestyle. But if it's not surrendered to the cross, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're here. I don't know why you're on planet Earth. I don't know why you're coming to this church. I don't know why. Culture of Christianity is under attack. I say praise God. Because maybe now will force some of us to grow a backbone. Lord, we come before you. We just ask, Lord, for people in the church to grow a backbone again. To gird our loins, as the prophet said. Just with some of that money, 
want you to take a brother or sister out and bless them. And take them out playing golf with you. Let us be a holy priesthood, a peculiar and strange people. Have the people on our street be like, hey, those great uncles, they are peculiar and they are strange. But they got love. They got love. And they got joy. And they're willing to bear a burden with me. Why did they do that? Because of Jesus. Amen. Why don't we stand? I actually really want to make sure, guys, I'm telling you, I live in, in many regards an American dream life. I'm not telling you, because you have a certain zip code, that you're less holier than another person. I am not saying that you should not even go to college. College is a good idea if the Lord wants you to go. What I'm trying to say here is, you guys, I know some of you young people, you're wrestling and you're fighting and you're doing everything you stinking can to get that American dream. Oh, if the American dream, dream happens, so be it. Don't wrestle to get there. Don't make that your idol. Don't make that the, 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 the whole point of your existence. Seek first the kingdom. Amen. Amen. And all people be added unto you. Amen. We're going to have a little time here. Being in the presence of the Lord, have a wonderful week. We hope to see you down in Philadelphia, out of our bubble, to go intercede in the city. If you have like big concerns about what I taught about today, please just understand. After preaching, I'm burned out, so don't come up to me and be like, "Hey, this, but this is a." You totally can't do that. Just not right after a sermon. That's why I have office hours on Wednesdays. Most people like to talk about such things right after church on Sunday. That's what Wednesdays for. Arise and eat now. I'll call you and talk about it. Just not right now because I'm like, woo! All right, have a wonderful week, guys.